singing in the children's story, there wouldn't be anything else to say about trees, but I have come up with a few other things to say about trees. First of all, I want to thank you for having us here today. We are um, pretty much in the middle of a three-month speaking tour um, around the U.S. and Canada, thanking churches that have supported us over the last 29 years in mission work in Australia and New Zealand. We started in 1990, and in the second hour, we'll talk more about uh, what we do in Australia and uh, where we're headed, kind of things we're doing. But we are, after 29 years, we're stepping down from the mission board at the end of September. We will remain in Australia, uh, working with the Anabaptist Association of Australia and New Zealand. And, <coughs> excuse me, we'll have, we'll have more to say about that in the second hour. But one of the things that's happened in this last year is we have moved from the coast of northern Sydney where we were at sea level and we could see the ocean and I could swim in the ocean every day, uh, even in the winter. And we've moved about three hours west and we're now a kilometer high and we're in the mountains and we're surrounded by all kinds of trees. And on this 87.4 acre property, I have developed um, a new appreciation for Australian trees. And so I I began exploring about trees and then particularly what the Bible has to say about trees. Now, Mary has always loved trees. Even when we lived on the coast and we would go for walks, she would talk to trees, she would feel the trees. Um, It it really slowed up our walks, but... um, she communicated with these trees, and um, I'm not at that stage yet, but I am learning more about trees. And I've discovered that Aboriginal peoples around the world have an appreciation for trees, and not as things, but as part of their community, part of their mob, as they would say in Australia. Um, they don't exist in some biological separateness, but are part of the human community as well. One Australian Aboriginal wrote, trees provide us with inspiration for our art and give us the aesthetic of the landscape. When the invading British, as one of their first acts on our country, cut them down, we wept and cried with the trees, sharing their pain and shielding them with our bodies. When we destroy trees, we destroy ourselves. We cannot survive in a treeless world. A recent newspaper article in Australia was entitled, The Government Wants to Bulldoze My Inheritance, 800-Year-Old Sacred Trees. The trees are supposed to be taken out to provide for a bypass that is going to save travelers two minutes in their drive. And this Aboriginal author says, what is two minutes to 800 years? He continues, these trees are my inheritance, our inheritance, Their survival and our fight to keep them alive and safe are a cultural obligation and an assertion of our sovereignty. And this sovereignty is a threat to the state. Now, recently, when you had the fire in Paris and the Notre Dame Cathedral was was nearly destroyed, within a matter of days, hundreds of millions of dollars were raised for this Western sacred site but we continue to destroy aboriginal sacred sites all around the world, including many of them which are trees. 
reading this news article about this 800-year-old tree, I was reminded how Palestinian olive groves today are being repeatedly bulldozed by Israeli occupiers. Destroying trees is a form of warfare as old as the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 20 lays out some rules for warfare for the people of Israel. And included in these instructions is this. If you besiege a town for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you must not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. Although you may take food from them, you must not cut them down. Are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? You may destroy only the trees that you know do not produce food. You may cut them down for use in building siege works against the town that makes war with you until it falls. Now, the majority of Jewish commentators that I read on this passage interpret the words, are trees in the field human, not as a rhetorical question, but as a statement stressing the relationship or similarity between trees and humans. In Jewish sources, it appears that the only natural object to which humankind is collectively compared is the fruit-producing tree of Deuteronomy 20:19. One 11th century Jewish authority said that since the tree is not an enemy, we have no right to destroy it or make it suffer because of disputes between human beings. A 10th century sage said that this same verse means that we must not cut down trees, for man is the tree of the field. That is, our lives as human beings depend on trees. We're intricately linked in some way. By either interpretation, one might expect that religious Jews would respect olive trees owned and cultivated by human beings, who, though not Jewish, were created in the image of God. Yet religious Jews are the most frequent perpetrators of terror attacks on trees that are used neither as bulwarks nor as cover for would-be snipers, but as sustenance for Palestinian life and livelihood. One reported incident in 2015 involved over 1,000 olive and almond trees. Palestinian leaders accused Israel of a war crime. The government response was, today was carried out the eviction of an illegal invasion of around 1,000 olive trees planted illegally without permits. According to Visualizing Palestine, and this is an older figure, as of October 2013, more than 800,000 trees were uprooted with $12.3 million lost each year by the 80,000 families depending on an olive harvest. In April, I came across an article in the Washington Post by the author of the book, Reforesting Faith, What Trees Teach Us About the Nature of God and His Love for Us. And he said this, Trees are mentioned more times in the Bible than any living thing other than God and people. There is a tree on the first and last page of the Bible, and one stands by every important character and theological event in Scripture. After I read this, I, as, as I read scripture now, I see trees jumping up all over the place where I missed them before, but they're there. He goes on to say, for those willing to bet their grandchildren's futures on Jesus' imminent return, recall that the trees of the forest shout for joy when God returns to destroy the destroyers of the earth. 
When Jesus does return, the trees will finally get their day in court, and they know the judgment will come down in their favor. Now, one of the first parables that we find in the Bible is about trees. And it's not one that's found on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. It's one that's found in the Old Testament in the book of Judges. And looking at the book of Judges, I think we have been trained to read the Bible in a non-political or apolitical way over the years. Even the, the title Judges uh, says this book is political. Uh, today, if we were writing this book, we'd probably call it presidents or prime ministers. It was about leaders of the country and what was going on at that time. And what was going on at that time is captured several times in the book with this sentence, in those days there was no king in Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. I read that recently. I thought that's populism gone wild or populism on steroids. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I also thought how contemporary. And so this parable that we're going to look at today, I think is very contemporary. It has uh, a whole bunch of candidates who are in running for leadership. It has nepotism. And it even has um, a massive display of capital punishment, which was in the news again this week. So while um, one church where I spoke, and I, did, I wasn't this um, blunt about this passage, we had a Sunday school class afterwards, and we went around and everybody talked about what they got out of this parable, and not one person mentioned anything political out of this passage. So I'm going to lay that out there right away. There are things I think we can get from it on a personal level, but I also think that in a book of Judges is talking about choosing national leaders. There is something here to say to us today, no matter what country you are in. So this, this parable shows up in Judges 9. But before that, we have the story of Gideon in Judges 8. And Gideon was known for his defeat of the Midianites. But the record of Gideon's achievements is dominated uh, by the Midianites, but he also deserves notoriety for his paternal accomplishments as well. Seventy sons, not to mention daughters and children born to his concubines. So he wasn't spending all his time out on the battlefield. <laughs> After his victory over the Midianites, the elders of Israel tempted Gideon with position, power, and prestige. They came to him and they said, you can set up a dynasty. Rule over us, both you, your son, and your grandson, since you have rescued us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, neither will my son. Yahweh shall rule you. This is one of the issues for the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. What does it mean for Yahweh to rule over us? And we know later they, they reject that and they say, we want a king to rule over us. We don't want Yahweh and some prophet or something. So the struggle for the people of Israel, how to let Yahweh rule over them. Gideon's response gives a rare glimpse of the character of a man who is not motivated by the promise of position or power. Gideon's response to the elders of Israel provides a critical lead-in to the parable in Judges 9, which begins with a conversation between one of Gideon's sons, Abimelech, by a Shechemite concubine, and his maternal family. 
After struggling with the frustration of his ambition to become the principal leader, he asks a question of his audience, and in it reveals the source of his frustration. Ablimelech, son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his uncles and all his mother's relatives and said to them, Ask all the leading men of Shechem, what do you think is best, that 70 men rule over you, all those sons of Jeroboam, Baal, uh, Gideon, or that one man rule? You'll remember that I am your own flesh and blood. So he plays that line there with them. I'm part of your family. Do you want 70 people to rule over you, or do you want me? In his desire to achieve rulership over Gideon's family, he was blocked by the fact that he was an illegitimate son and that there were at least 70 options for the position vacated at Gideon's death, and all 70 were ahead of him. As long as any of these 70 sons remained alive, he had no chance of becoming ruler. His appeal to the Shechemites was supported by the flesh and blood or flesh and bone connection of family ties. His mother's family provided both political and financial support that resulted in an ambush of Gideon's sons at Ophrah, wherein all 70 were murdered on one stone, except for the youngest son, Jotham, who hid himself and escaped the slaughter. The attitude of Ablimelech reveals a ruthlessness toward his brothers that brings into question the flesh and blood argument that he used to woo the Shechemites. It was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones that he murdered there on the rock of Ophrah. Now, Stan Patterson, who is a professor at Andrews University, says in a commentary on this passage, a dominance orientation is always rooted in an exaggerated opinion of self and a marginalization of others. It opens the door for coercive behavior that engenders fear and force, limited only in terms of what the character of the person will allow. In his bid for dominance, Ablimelech's character allowed the most extreme coercion, deception, and murder. The reward was his coronation beside the oak of the pillar, which is at Shechem, uh, a Jewish sacred site maybe, and the title of king. Jotham's response was both creative and courageous. And here is where we get to the parable that I mentioned. From Mount Gerizim, which faced Shechem from the southeast, his voice called Ablimelech and the Shechemites to account before God for their treachery. So he stands across the valley from them, and he tells them a story. He tells them a parable, like many good prophets. Let me tell you a story. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to stand and sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go and sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go and sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush or the bramble bush, You come reign over us. 
And the thorn bush said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and shelter in my shade. But if not, may fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the tree is a common metaphor for Israel and is here used in a most creative manner. The trees that go seeking a king are not identified as a species until the very end of the parable where they become the victims of the thorn bush's treachery. Knowing the species of the trees desiring a king is necessary for a clear understanding of Jotham's intended message. For the first tree approached is the olive tree, the second the fig, the third is a non-tree, the grapevine, and finally the thorn bush or the bramble bush. All are significantly smaller than the cedar of Lebanon and thus incapable of fulfilling the request to reign over or sway over the cedar by virtue of their relative size. The olive and fig both refuse the request for advancement on the basis of a clear recognition of their calling and personal satisfaction coming from the product that their services provide. The move away from the realm of trees addresses Abimelech's lack of formal sun status, which disqualifies him from service as the primary leader to replace Gideon. The vine, though not a tree, reveals wisdom common to both of the previous candidates. All three knew what they were created for and were not successfully tempted to covet a role that was not theirs in order to gain power and the glory of position. But the thorn bush, or the bramble, was a different kind of candidate altogether. The thorn bush was lying in wait for an opportunity to dominate and rule. The thorn bush certainly has legitimate purpose in the ecology of God's creation, but that purpose is not attended by the prestige or public honor that is granted to the olive, the fig, the vine, or the cedar of Lebanon. Now, our time living in Atlanta, Georgia, back in the early 1980s with Mennonite Central Committee, introduced us to a new plant for us, kudzu. We were told when we moved there, they said, this, this plant, if you stand still and watch on a hot summer day, you can actually see this plant growing. It can grow up to three feet in one day. And it will cover everything around it. And at the same time, it will smother what it is covering. Now, it's not the thorn bush or the bramble bush that's talked about in this parable, but it's the same kind of bush or plant. The thorn bush readily accepted the offer of kingship and just as readily followed with a threat of coercive dominance. A paraphrase of the response might be, yes, I will do it. In fact, if you don't allow me to sway over you and be king, I will personally destroy you by fire. This eager acceptance and subsequent threat are both empty and shelter a tragic lie, for the truth is that dominant coercive leadership brings decay and death. Just like the kudzu plant, it looks nice and green, but everything under it is dying away. The tree that shelters under the thorn bush would never have suffered the promised fire, but it would have entered into a leadership relationship resulting in death. There are thousands of trees in the southeastern United States that appear lush green and healthy, but actually stand dead beneath the leaves of the kudzu vine. Now, Abimelech ruled Israel for three years, but is appropriately not remembered 
as Israel's first king. He was betrayed and died at the hands of his own flesh and blood relatives. Um, After Jotham tells this parable, he says to the leaders of Shechem and to Abimelech, he said, look, if what you did in killing these 70 brothers of mine was right, well, then God bless you. But if not, he essentially says, then you can go to hell. And then Jotham takes off, and we don't hear anything more about Jotham. Abimelech and the Shechemites fell out in no time at all. And Abimelech did use fire against the Shechemites. One time he had a bunch of them in a tower, and he set fire to the tower. And then he tried that again, and a woman threw a millstone off the tower and hit him in the head. And he was so horrified by the idea that he would die at the hands of a woman that he said to his bodyguard, kill me, thrust me through. I don't want it to be known that I was killed by a woman. But the writer of Judges slips that in there. He was killed by a woman. Ah, what dishonor. Um, What do we do with this parable today? How should we apply this parable to our present setting? What does it say about leadership in the church? Leadership in the community and leadership in the country. I'll let you chew on that, but I want to make one application from our setting down under. We were in New Zealand earlier this year when the shootings took place in the mosques in Christchurch. The tragedy dominated the news and people's conversations for weeks. We were at a conference uh, when it happened, and... (laughs) People came up to us and they said, well, you're American. How do you deal with this? Um, And we said, there is no easy way to deal with this. For the people in New Zealand, this was their 9-11 event. They just kept saying, this doesn't happen in New Zealand. And it shocked the whole country. But one clear story emerged involving leadership. The New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, did an excellent job of leading her country through the horrors that shocked the whole nation. She immediately stepped in with compassion and grace and love and was on the scene comforting the victims. Chris Marshall, a member of uh, the Anabaptist Association in New Zealand, wrote that Jacinda is being hailed around the world as a beacon of hope for a new kind of political leadership. It is hard for New Zealanders not to feel a sense of pride in her performance and a pride also that our small country, notwithstanding its own entrenched injustices, has spawned a female leader of such caliber, courage, and compassion. In an international arena increasingly dominated by thugs, bullies, and strongmen, Jacinda Ardern has provided a masterclass in what I call compassionate justice. He examines why Jacinda's response was so different than many other leaders and quotes another author who puts it down to love. It was Jacinda's display of authentic love that makes her example so difficult for other politicians to emulate. For it is not just what Jacinda did, but how she did it that was crucial. The gift of support she gave to those traumatized by the massacre was imbued with the spirit in which she offered it. And without that spirit, without that sincerely felt love, her gift would not have had its restorative power. None of this, Chris writes, is to imply that Jacinda is a saint or superhuman. Quite the opposite. The reason why she has had such an astonishing impact on millions of people here and around the world devastated by the massacre 
is because she responded in such a genuinely human way, a way that allowed compassion rather than political calculation to guide her actions. May we all be people who let compassion and love rule in our lives. That Jeremiah passage that was read to us is given in a way of a curse and a blessing. It starts off, cursed is the ones who put their trust in human leaders. But then the blessing is for those who put their trust in Yahweh. And it says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when the heat comes and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious and it does not cease to bear fruit. Let me close with a word of prayer. Like a tree planted by living water is the person who commits to your ways, O Lord. Nourish us with your disciplining love. Prune our branches for growth. Teach us also to recognize good fruit and to recoil from the bitterness of the bad. Amen. Let's turn together to number 525, number 525. And I'm going to suggest here that uh, the third verse, the girls and women's voices sing the third verse, the boys and men on fourth, and again then on fifth, everyone. So everyone in one, two, and five. Let's stand together, please. Oh. Uh-huh. 